Light Support listeners, thanks for tuning in this week. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Lynn MacArthur regarding eating disorders. So if you missed it, please go back and listen to part one first. Or if you're one of those folks that likes to eat their pizza crust first, after, I guess. A reminder to hit like or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Enjoy. The other thing that you brought up that really kind of resonated with me is around this idea of communal eating and food. And I think, you know, people experience that in their families or chosen families, um, that oftentimes food is an anchor. And we learn so much of that when we're young. And it seems like that particularly in these times of upheaval or stress, young people can be really affected by that. So when you think about eating disorders in the context of children and youth, that that really kind of makes me think of what's the impact for them um, for um, going through an eating disorder. Can you talk a little bit more about that population of patients? It's interesting, Rachel, when I work with even adults who maybe their eating disorder didn't quite begin until late adolescence, early adulthood, oftentimes they remember things from their childhood, little comments, um, habits of people close to them related to food. And sometimes I hear them and think, why do we have to be so diet culture centric in our society? And I think that happened a lot, too. I mean, people were talking about the COVID-15, like we talk about freshman 15, and we really um, talk about weight in a lot of ways that um, creates fear, especially in someone who's biologically predisposed to experience an eating disorder. You know, I also think when school wasn't in session during COVID and just in general, our kids are getting on social media at such a younger age, and there's a lot of pressure on social media, and people project the best versions of themselves and angles that flatter them to look like their stomach is flatter and, and thinner than it really is. I think all of that contributes to uh, learning from a very young age of what I should look like and what's expected of me. And it's really hard to to sort through all of that and from a research perspective of what is impacting what. But I think we know that social learning happens and whether that's in our families or on um, Instagram or TikTok or wherever it may be, um, I think our kids really have more of that than any generation ever has in the past. I mean, most kids have phones prior to age 12 and have social media accounts even when they're not old enough to do so. And and have a lot of exposure to that. So I do think that combined with just the changes that have happened in the last several years, we will have to see how this impacts kids in the long haul. Um, I think there are some really positive messages as well, though. When I think about, again, some, you know, we mentioned, I won't say any specific celebrity names, but there have been a lot of celebrities who have written books, who have been very open in their social media accounts, um, there are a lot of influencers who have said, here's how I pose myself to look like this, but this is what I really look like in real life. Um, so I think there's also a movement to be more real and genuine about body image insecurities. And also many of the people that I work with, we talk about the differences between the different movements like body positivity, body neutrality, body acceptance. Many of them were moved more towards the body neutrality of being able to be accepting of their bodies and to notice the difference between the, the aesthetics of their bodies, the function of their bodies, but to be more neutral about the aesthetics or say, yeah, I don't like my stomach and that's okay. 
I like that it helps me digest my food and I like that it helps me, you know, when I walk from my car to my job every day. And so um, I think, you know, our culture is for our younger kids, setting them up for more knowledge and information about um, alternatives to diet culture. That I'm hopeful that maybe that will help change how we look at clean eating. The clean eating movement was really disturbing to me because um, it moralizes food and the title of it, clean versus unclean, good versus bad. Most of the time when we moralize food, and that really hits young people hard, right? If we say, don't eat that, it's bad. Bad sticks out to us from a very young age, and we're looking at good, bad, clean, unclean, healthy, unhealthy. Um, and so having a more neutral approach to food and eating and exercise and all of those sorts of things is, is just really important. Absolutely. You made the comment about like people that you work with thinking back to the, your childhood and, you know, those comments that stick out and, you know, you can think about like that one time grandma was like, don't eat that roll, another roll or something like that. And I don't mean to joke about it. I mean, cause I, I, the, it's sticking out to me and my recollection of like how family talks about food and really sticking in your memory as a young kid. And then also my perspective as a parent, you know, trying to teach my kids about the value of food as fuel, but then also still that piece of me that's like, oh, I don't know that that control piece can, should you really have another Kit Kat today? <laughs> like, um, you know, I, I think walking that line for parents and trying to find like, how do you support, how do you support healthy eating? Um, and also how, well, I don't know, healthy eating is maybe not the right word. How do you support a healthy relationship with your body and with food? And what what should we as parents know about eating disorders um, in the context of supporting the youth in our lives? Yeah. And I think there are all sorts of good resources and theories out there when it comes to um, trying to help our kids develop more positive relationships with food. Because if we continue our own distorted relationships with food, and I think everyone has that to some degree, um, then we're handing that to them on a platter, right? And that's probably not what we want to do. Um, and I think most of us have those moments in time that, you know, you mentioned grandma and the role I have. My grandma, every time she served corn, would say, don't eat too much of that corn. That's what they served the hogs when I was little. And so I thought of corn as being something that made hogs really fat, right? And so um, I think we all have kind of those just odd things living in our brains that it's it's helpful to process through so we can let them go and not um, carry those on to the next generations. Um, Ellen Satter is someone, I don't know if you've heard of her, Rachel. I believe she's actually from Idaho, but she has some guidance about raising kids and um, providing them with uh, structured mealtimes and giving them time to eat um, and giving them lots of options to eat. But then the parent having the control of, okay, lunch is done. Okay, we're not ready for snack time yet. It's at this time. So that the parent has their role and their delegations that they um, take over. And the child has their own voice and control and choices that they make at mealtimes. Um, and I think for a lot of parents who are struggling with that of, oh, I want to give my kids adequate nutrition, that's sometimes a very helpful approach for young kids 
to figure out how do I give some level of control without taking too much control? Because we do know that for many people, control is a huge part of eating disorders. And just having a healthy relationship with food in general, if we feel like we're deprived of certain foods, what do we want more of? The foods that we're deprived of, right? So finding a way to make all foods fit is something really helpful from a young age. You know, parents raising, raising very young kids, I think that, that um, having that approach can, can be helpful rather than over-controlling um, and making a lot of foods or food groups or food types, rewards or off-limits or only available at certain times when maybe that makes those foods more appealing to a child than having an all foods fit types of type of approach. I love that as a parent of a four-year-old and 18-month-old um, that feels like that's something that I'm constantly navigating. Um, so I appreciate you highlighting that. Yeah, I think it gets more complicated when it comes to raising kids in middle childhood into adolescence. When, again, social media happens... We start comparing ourselves to our peer groups, spending more time with our peer groups than with our families. And that's when it's a little bit harder. Um, you know, in a lot of our teaching around certain mental health conditions or certain um, behaviors like suicidal ideation, the mental health field has been very upfront about, hey, let's talk about this. Let's ask directly. Let's ask about means of suicide rather than pretending like that that kid might not know what that means or we're not planting ideas in their heads. It's a little trickier when it comes to eating disorders. We're not so sure that that applies in the same way. Telling a 12-year-old about the different ways of purging may or may not be helpful. We don't really know. There's not evidence to suggest that that is helpful in the same way that assessing for suicide or asking questions might be. So I think parents oftentimes feel very stuck about, if I notice a change in my kid, like I notice they're gaining weight or losing weight um, at a rate that seems different than what they have in the past. If I notice that they seem really fixated on their body image now or change their style to wear really loose baggy clothes or um, want to start eating alone in their rooms for meals or, um, you know, start dieting or eliminating food groups or start exercising more. Um, their, food, their food choices are much pickier than they were before. They leave right after meals. They have changes in their dental exams and suddenly you're having more um, erosion to their ena enamel or cavities. We find food wrappers. You know, if we notice they're extremely perfectionistic and very anxious about mealtime or perfectionistic about their grades or they're just moodier, you know, it's like, how do we talk to them about that? And that's when I think it gets harder. We hope we've done a pretty good job of helping them have um, a body positive or body neutral, um, body accepting approach in life. And that we've done our best to not put our compliments around weight or body size or shape or appearance in general, because all of those tend to make a person more aware of their bodies as opposed to just living in their bodies, navigating through life. Um, but if we do notice those things, what do we do about it, right? And I think that's where parents feel stuck a lot of the times. I think we can try to model all of the things we just talked about if we didn't do a good job of it earlier on. And, and that happens too, and that's okay. And I think that's um, 
talking with our kids about that and saying, you know, I think I might have passed on some of my unhealthy relationship with my body to you. And here's what I notice about me. What do you think? You know, that might be a good discussion point. Then not in great detail, but just in general. Do you notice that? I think we can also notice if they're feeling more tired or frustrated or moody or lonely or um, more dissatisfied or more focused on being very perfect, right? And that seems different for them. And we love them and we're wondering if something's changed or is bothering them. You know, how are they feeling in approaching it from that angle? Because I think a lot of times parents clam up or they start saying things like, you've lost weight. Are you okay? Are you eating at school? What are you eating at school? I want you to take a picture of what you're eating at school so I know what you're eating at school. And that comes from a place of love, but it probably backfires in terms of if that kid is really struggling, they're going to feel more like they have to take tighter rein of their food choices and start hiding more things. So I think that's, you know, something parents can know if they notice a change in their kid and just try to get them some help early on. Because if they're noticing some of those changes that tend to happen with eating disorders, but also anxiety and depression and bullying and all of these other things, having a mental health professional who can start trying to to decipher what's going on would probably be more helpful than the parent digging too deeply. Because when it comes to, I think, nourishment and food and health, parents panic, understandably, because they're scared and they're scared for their child. Um, so parents and caregivers, I would say, start asking some open-ended, gentle, empathic questions and let your child take the lead and keep asking if they're not very open about it. Um, and just show them that you're a safe place to land if they need it and get them some help. Hard time for parents and kids right now. Yeah, but that's fantastic. It, it, when you gave your example of the overly anxious parents talking to the kid about their lunch, it could have also been my husband doing his imitation of be, me being an anxious mom. So that that example resonates. <laughs> and uh, no, I, I think it's a good reminder because when you're in it, in any of these situations, as a parent, as a friend, as a family member, just as somebody who cares, it can be hard to take those couple of steps back of like, okay, what, what do we need to do in this moment? The other um, group of people that I want to talk about kind of surrounding particularly kids um, or others that might be um, at risk of an eating disorder, but really thinking more about kids is healthcare providers. What you, you've talked about um, primary care often being kind of like the gatekeeper for a lot of this, but also that they often don't have a ton of training, if any, in eating disorders. Um, you know, if you could summarize a few things that you really um, would like primary care providers, healthcare providers to have on their radar about eating disorders, what, what would that be? That's a tricky question because I think um, the medical model has done some of its own harm in um, weight stigma over the years. Uh, and I think there's a lot of effort to correct that and, and make some changes to that. Um, you know, when I work at an FQHC, one of our measures that we have to show that we're doing regularly is weighing people and telling them what BMI they fall into and then giving them recommendations based on that. I do some training each year with PA students here in the Pocatello area. And one of the things that I really focus on is, yeah, weight is a health indicator. There are dozens of health indicators. 
that's one that we really focus on. We really focus on the risks of obesity, the risks of being overweight. There's, you know, I'm not denying that those risks aren't real, but we also don't say to someone every time we see them at a visit at their healthcare appointments, you know, you have that family history of breast cancer. We really need to keep an eye on it. That's part of, that's a health indicator too. That's a health predictor when we look at a family history, but we're not constantly harping on that. And so um, the way that I've tried to shift my approach and how I encourage the medical professionals that I work with and those that I help in their training is, why don't we look at this person as a whole? And if you're concerned about this kid's BMI changing, you know, a lot of times pediatricians, primary care providers, they're looking at that trajectory for that kid. You know, are they following the path we would expect them to based on their birth weight and height? And that kind of sticks with the kid. You get several data points and that is their path. And kids go through puberty at such a young age. Most kids put on some weight before puberty because their body is shifting and changing and they really need that extra fat to transition into that and to develop in the way that they need to develop. And so I kind of talk about why don't we talk less about weight and talk about the factors that might be contributing to weight, right? So why don't we talk about, you know, how's your sleep been? How do you feel like you're treating your body on a daily basis? Do you feel like you're being pretty kind to it? Is it giving you any signs that it's unhappy with you, right? Is your stomach hurting? How are you feeling? And really trying to get a sense of body, mind, and spirit. Again, I'm not leaving weight out, um, but I think weight is such a triggering word for a lot of people that as soon as they hear that, they shut down or they feel ashamed. And we know that many folks who are overweight avoid seeing their primary care provider, kids included, start to really dislike going to their pediatrician if they're talking about weight regularly. And so I take more of that. Why don't we support, empower, and look at how is that person doing what do they need to honor their bodies more. And honor your body is kind of an adolescent and up term probably. But I think we can look at kids and, and ask about, you know, how are you pooping? <laughs> how are there things? Let's talk about that. Have there been any changes? And you can ask a six-year-old that and they probably know a little bit more, right? So trying to get more in tune with other health indicators that might be related to their overall health. I ask people to to scale back on focusing on weight in particular and look at all the different health indicators. You know, how is that person's triglycerides? How's that person's blood pressure? Those are both pretty strong health indicators too. Um, so that's some advice that I, I give healthcare providers. I also think we didn't get a lot of that in our training. We are we can be empowered to seek it out and um with the internet now, it's really easy to find online uh, quality uh, CEU or CMU opportunities. Look for them. There are also plenty of really good data files out there. Intermountain Healthcare has a document that they update every few years based on eating disorder research. Uh, all of their citations are there, but it goes over and covers um, Recommended labs, recommended scans, recommended patterns of labs to look for if you're concerned about someone who might be struggling with food intake. 
um, to help figure that out if they're not being entirely honest about it. Because many, t- many times people think they're being honest with this because they're justifying what they're doing. They're in denial about how extreme their behaviors are. Um, and sometimes it can help if we say, you know, I'm concerned that maybe you're not eating enough. This lab and this lab are usually low when people aren't getting enough nutrition. Um, and I'm worried about your risk of bone loss if we don't talk about this, or I'm worried about your heart if we don't talk about this. And again, that gets away from monitoring weight, 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 weight at each session and looking at more health indicators. So that's something that I really look for. I would also say get familiar with good screeners. Know the other professionals in your area who treat eating disorders. Don't assume every therapist, every dietitian um, is knowledgeable in that area because their training was probably like yours and they spent maybe a couple of hours learning about it. Perfect. I, I think that that's super helpful, again, as we look at kind of how the trajectory of eating disorders has changed in the last 20 to 30 years. That's not just in the general public. That's with medical providers and others too. So I think that that's critical to highlight. And the resources that you mentioned um, for listeners, we can definitely link those in the show notes. Uh, One last question that I've got, I know we've taken up our whole time because I think that this is just a critical topic, but um, if you had a couple of things to say to kids that were struggling with eating disorders that may not be in treatment right now, um, what would you want them to know? I would want them to know it's never too early to get help. And a lot of kids kind of minimize, they say, well, all my friends are on diets. All of my friends are doing this or that. Um, Because that's dieting happens. I mean, a large portion of 12-year-olds have been on a diet now. Dieting happens very early. If it feels like something is is wrong or getting out of control or scary, tell a trusted adult. Um, that could be a school counselor. One thing that I recommend for parents and kids to work on is, is there an adult in that kid's life that's not a parent or caregiver who they can have their cell phone number, they can have that a trusted adult's contact information, that trusted adult knows it, and they have agreed to the parent that they won't disclose anything that kid tells them unless that kid is in danger, right? A lot of times kids don't want to come to us as their parents or caregivers. They're scared. They're worried about, you know, if something is wrong, um, how will that affect me and my family? How will that affect my freedom? Will I suddenly be under lock and key all the time? There's a lot of fear around that. So find a trusted adult um, who you can talk to and express that you are concerned about that. I think it's also important to really remember social media is not reality. You don't have to be perfect. I would tell them, learn about diet culture. Start searching in TikTok for diet culture and learn about it because sometimes a little bit of healthy anger goes a long way to taking back your control over your life and letting go of perfectionism. But early intervention is key when it comes to eating disorders. We know recovery can be really long and they tend to stretch out without help and they go undiagnosed for a long time. So the earlier, the better. And that would probably be my biggest recommendations, Rachel. I know we've stretched on our time a little bit. Well, like like I said, I, I'm glad that we have. I know you you might have a patient to run to. So um, I, I do just so appreciate you talking about this really important topic that um, I, I feel like maybe doesn't get as much airtime as some of the other topics that we focus on. But 
is really critical um, for for everyone that we see and we serve in the communities where we work. So um, I so appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thank you to Dr. Lynn MacArthur for talking with us today. Um, for those life support listeners, again, please remember to like and subscribe. And thank you again for listening to us this week. Lynn, thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Rachel. Thanks, everyone, for watching and listening. That's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, please remember to like or subscribe. And remember that we all need a little life support. Life Support is a podcast developed by CWHO with the support of the ISOS grant, where we talk to providers, experts, and others about their experiences with health and the systems that create it. This podcast music is written and performed by Anthony Leon. The show is also produced by Anthony. For more information, visit us on the web at CWHO.org, and remember to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks, everybody.